Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello everybody! Welcome to another episode of the Guilt, Grace, and Gratitude podcast. This is the episode three, How to Read the Bible. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing pretty fantastic. How are you doing, Nick? Great, great. And uh, this is going to be um, obviously how to read the Bible, but we might overlap some information you might have heard on the first episode because it's very closely related subject, obviously, which was the history of the Bible, and why it's factual. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Peter, I, you know, I kind of did a little bit of background um, be- right before this this podcast just to get some numbers uh, illustrated here. Um, with, with the Bible, obviously it's 66 books. Mm-hmm. Um, they're broken down into three main categories. 43% of the of the Bible is in narrative format, 33% in poetry, and 24% in prose discourse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, with that said, uh, in your words, yeah. in your seminary-educated words, and uh, how could you... 33% seminary-educated words. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Um, so how, how could you further describe the Bible in a nutshell from what I just said? Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's super helpful for modern day readers, and that's we are reading the Bible as twenty first century people, and so we have to put categories on it that make sense for us. And so, narrative and prose, and um, some of them are fancy terms some of the listeners may have never heard of. But it's narrative; it's like reading like a a uh, a Civil War book, like a history of the Civil War, where they're they're putting out facts, they're putting out historical facts and figures and things that happened, and then um, prose being a different kind of narrative with some interspersed stuff into it, and there's there's a lot of categories, so it's like reading like a Supreme Court briefing, um, and then there's more like letters, where it's like it's kind of being uh, a fly in the wall when somebody's composing something kind of pre-phones and pre-email and uh, writing it to somebody that they um, love and that they want to see succeed and they want to see come back to the face. So it's a lot of these different things are just our way of describing what's 1500 BC to about 100 AD people would have thought and would have would have written through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you probably would agree that each book in the Bible has a primary literary literary style, but it also includes the others. So it's not yeah, limited yeah. just to that one. Yeah, so... Yeah, totally. So, yeah, and I mean, from my understanding, narrative are a lot like looking at as stories, and they're the mm-hmm. uh, most common form of communication, the most universal way of remembering um, how things happened. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a lot of the Bible, and it's... I think it's pretty intentional where the Bible is historical and that's part of the, the narrative structure of it as well. So what would you have to say about the three, getting into a subcategory of narrative style, 
uh, history, parable, and biography. Yeah, so it's we have to think, and again, it's uh, the Bible. I mean, kind of backing up. So if you're if you're to talk to a real estate agent and you ask mm-hmm. them what are the three big things about being a successful real estate agent, they mm-hmm. would tell you three things. It'd be location, location, and location. <laughs> And for us as believers in the Bible, for us, especially in the Reformed tradition, it's context, context, context. Right. Uh, both in the scripture itself, but also how they would have written. So we can't read even a 1860s document on the Civil War exactly how we would read uh, Cold War documents or kind of the Iraqi War documents, stuff that we would know. Um, kind of a part of our generation. So even even those things change a little bit too. Mm-hmm. So it's getting behind the mind of the author and saying, who's he writing to? What's their life situation? What kind of questions are they asking? Uh, what part of life are they in? And then big thing too, is this, is this pre-Christ? Is this intra or kind of during Christ? Or is this post-Christ? Mm-hmm. And so reading texts in that light as well. Correct, correct, yeah. And this is kind of some of the topic we went over on that first episode, whereas context, then who was writing it and when it was written, and then who were the very first off or the very first listeners or readers, and what was going on in the world during that time as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning today, but it's knowing the context, knowing the life situation, knowing the artifacts and the history and the archaeology and some of the documents around that time actually gives us a greater, more fuller um, understanding and context today. So it it helps us in our understanding of the Bible versus disassociating or kind of tearing apart. That was then, this is now. Mm. It's it's not that. It it fills an understanding. So that's narrative, which is... You know, story format, um, which we all love stories. I think that's everyone's favorite way of yeah, learning. Yeah, I mean, we, the Pixar, Disney, mm-hmm. they have mastered the art of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And we can go into it more, but the biblical narrative actually moves very similar to what you'd see in Pixar. It's really similar. That is an interesting topic. Yeah, I I think I know where you're going with that, but I don't I don't want to totally. Throw the wheel, yeah, throw teaser. the wheels off the wagon here. <laughs> Too yeah. much, um, and yeah, the reason why as humans we love stories, it, it just is our natural way of remembering things. And it goes back to a previous episode where we're talking about a lot of people. That's how how they remembered an ancient uh, Israel, an ancient world. Is yeah. even if a lot of people couldn't read, how they remembered things is just amazing memories of stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, narrative and uh, poetry were very easy for them to remember. Yeah, and which is, stories really are, you know, you have a character, you have a lesson that needs to be learned, um, a conflict, a challenge to overcome. Um, what are, what would you say are some great examples, which every book, again, mm-hmm. is not limited to just one of these writing styles, but what are some, if someone was to say, hey, can you... Can you tell me a book to pop right into right now that's a great example of a narrative style? Yeah, so there's, there's two of them. And I think one that's more probably recognizable, and I can use one that's more recognizable to listeners and one that's less recognizable. So I'll use one that's more recognizable first. Okay, okay. 
Uh, and that's the the parents. Actually, I'll use I'll use the other one. I'll use um, it's Exodus 17. Uh, it's strictly historical, so it's the Israelites. This is right before Mount Sinai when the law is given. The Israelites are have been in the desert for many, many, many years, forty plus years, um, whatever the exact time period may have been. Uh, and that's the thing too. We have to realize with narrative, it's not facts as we think of facts. It is there's theology behind it. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff behind it, but it is historical in the sense this stuff actually happened. Um, but with Exodus, it's there are kind of three parties. So you have to think of characters. There's um, Moses and kind of the what soon what's going to be the Levitical priests and the priesthood. Um, the people, so the Israelites, who have just kind of come out of slavery. Uh, out of Egypt, and then there's Yahweh, the Elohim, the God. Mm, mm-hmm. So those those three <clears throat> characters, um, and so there's there's a whole lead up from the Exodus, and even though they were in slavery, and this is kind of all the context building into kind of the summit of a conflict. They had food, but they were under slavery, and so there was those two kind of conflicting things in their wilderness in the not the exile but coming towards mount sinai uh there is famine in the sense that they weren't uh fed or not taken care of but they didn't have the resources they had in egypt however they were free there's there's that tension that they're kind of fighting through and the text brings us through that and so at the end right before they get the law there's this tension where they are Effectively, they're strifing. So there's a word in Hebrew. It's called it's. And the, the, the other commentators will talk about the reeve discourse. Mm-hmm. And reeve is to contend with to effectively like it's when uh, in ancient Israel somebody had a dispute against somebody else, they would call for a lawyer and then they called a reeve. It's like a legal case. And so this legal case was brought up against Moses, literally saying. You have not provided for us. We don't care about the manna. We want the milk. We want the honey. We want the, the good food we had in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And they're divorcing this from their slavery in Egypt. And so you have to read this text. Like, there's this huge tension. And we have to put ourselves, not in Moses' shoes, we have to put ourselves, we're in Israelite shoes. And so the text is going to lead us towards that, too, in, in historical narrative. Historical narrative as readers today we have to put ourselves this doesn't sound weird but it's like that 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 very um exclusively sinner's shoes so the ones who fault in the test we have to assume that's us so we can't be the one who's doing the right stuff who's a mediator we're the ones who need the mediator ourselves so we're we are the israelites in that text mm-hmm. and the israelites when they contend against them, they use that hebrew verb reeve and what happens is there's this conflict at the end where Moses is saying, like, these people are striking against me. What do I do, Lord? And what happens, and this is where the text is kind of coalescing, or it's kind of the zenith at the top of the conflict. Literally, the Lord, he puts himself on top of the rock and tells Moses to strike this rock. And striking back then would have been an inherently, you are the one at fault in this. And so what he should have done is he should have stricken the Israelites for their transgression, for their disbelief, for their desire to be back in slavery. Instead, he strikes a rock. And that rock, obviously 
we see in the New Testament being Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's talked about in First Corinthians from Paul. Paul kind of interprets this as saying, and that rock was Christ. And he's referring to the Exodus 17 story. And so the historical narrative is, is showing us through the progression of history um, a small picture of the substitution of Christ because that rock being struck should have stricken Israelites, but it strikes the rock and the water flows through it instead of death. Mm. And so you have to let the text bring you along. You have to feel that tension. You have to feel like, oh my gosh, the Israelites are about to be killed. The Israelites are about to be struck down after their strife. And who is struck down? It's the rock. It's not the Israelites. Mm. The Lord himself takes the strike. And so that's that's where you want to see. You want to see who the characters. You want to see what's the tension in this text. You want to see what's the height of the conflict. And then you want to see what's the resolution. Uh, and all of that leads to kind of a fuller grasp of what that historical narrative points to. I mean, and you can see in the New Testament where, like, where do the New Testament authors authors follow this and how do they interpret it? And Hebrews interprets a lot of the law, and Paul will interpret a lot of the historical narratives. And so he takes this and literally tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that rock that you saw in Exodus 17, that rock was Christ. Wow. That, I mean, that, that's what's amazing about the Bible, that there's so many different books written over a span of, what, a thousand years? Yeah, 1,500-ish years, something like that. And they're so perfectly written, because only God could do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> he is the yeah. main author, and they all tie to each other. I mean, what is that word? Is it hermeneutics, where you can cross-reference certain books and find out where symbolism means in one book is yeah. Is, yeah. is like the rock in Exodus, like you were talking about, would be a symbolism well, it really happened. You know, it wasn't yeah, yeah. just a, a... but it's a it's, type, a shadow of the one to come. It's, it's showing us kind of part of God's, God's redemptive plan. Right, right. I mean, that's what's cool about unpacking the Bible. The more you read it and the more you talk about it with friends, the more it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's why... So the, the Bible, this is still... I don't even know when the statistic happened, but uh-huh. it's been the number one read and sold is it both categories read and yeah, sold book so. in the entire world yeah by a pretty long shot by a long shot um so that is narrative um i you know and going back to just stories which are narrative yeah. it, it's it's always amazed me but i have my own personal thoughts of why this is but <laughs> there's there's amazes me that there's not more books and movies well especially movies that are hmm. uh, talk about the books of the Bible, like yeah. in, in with amazing actors and everything, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. you know, and that are like on the big screen because it is sixty six books compiled into one universal story, talking about God's love about us, and He is yeah. the main author, and He is the main character. He literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was one an analogy I heard from somebody who's beautifully said that i'll probably butcher but uh it's like god is a artist a painter and he's painting a picture and he um actually inserts himself into the painting Mm -hmm. and you know it's just amazing that 
but it's not really surprising that you know in the fallen world that we're in that uh, that the the story isn't really told more like on the big screen and everything because yeah. like it's just so much amazing stories and if you look at any love story ever made it really follows the same line as really the Bible the the biggest love story of all time is is Jesus you know yeah that's and that's true I think a, a lot of the reason why it's hard even outside of uh, movies, but for uh, an appreciation for the biblical text and narrative is so often it's moralized and so historical narrative people people don't see and I think sometimes uh, preachers who just maybe don't have the education or haven't put the, the time and effort or just are not really sure um, it's very easy to preach like doctrine texts it's very easy to preach from Paul and give people moral absolutes and you should do this and you should do this and Mm-hmm. Um, in effect, give them a lot of law, give them a lot of moralistic advice. Mm-hmm. And historical narratives are hard to preach because there's nothing telling us, do this. We're given effectively examples, poor examples, sinful examples. And then because they don't know how to preach or we don't know how to read it, what we will kind of naturally go to is we will moralize the text. Well, we, like, we have to be... We have to be free from our sinful desires. We have to be free from the slavery that's that's taken us in the past. When we look at the Israelites and the and the rock in Exodus 17, instead of seeing, like you said, a holistic biblical evidence showing us, no, this is not about morals. This is not about you trying to break free of your slave past. It is the one who was cursed was not you. The one who was cursed was Christ. He took his, he took on your curse. He took on your disobedience. He struck himself, and then as a result, gave us the water, gave us that life. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of moralizing and saying, um, either we're Moses and we have opposite people under us, we have to figure out how to how to bring them in line, or we're the people and we come from this this slavery passage. So it's it's less moralistic and it's more how does this show us a different shade of the gospel of Christ? Well, and it's only a story that. We would never come up with it ourselves. Like it's only such an amazing story because it's from God. And you know, I'm like, I am a huge, you know, um, superhero fan and all that. And I mean, yeah, exactly. And it just even crushes the plot of you know the Avengers movie. You know, I don't want to ruin the ending for the listeners, but you know, it's just the ultimate re- ultimate redemption story where the main character, the hero really gives himself up for yeah. people that don't even deserve it or like him. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, Batman or Superman, you know, they, they, they're pretty much not really fully appreciated by the people that they're saving. And, uh, yeah, and they, true. yeah, it's just, so I think as humans, we keep trying to do these secular versions of the gospel in movies in fictional format that just fall short. Um, yeah, I'll move along here. Um, another little nugget that I put down that I personally kind of came across, um, and I don't know if this is right, so kind of maybe... Put the bumpers on if I'm going a little too far. But when I'm reading the Old Testament, and it's a lot about historic ancient Israel, and then I'm reading a lot about the New Testament, and it seems like it's almost like anytime you read 
in the Old Testament and it mentions Israel, you can kind of replace that with you individually. Like, like every time it talks about Israel does this or Israel does that, a lot of times it rebels against God. And he keeps redeeming them over and over. It's like you could replace it with Israel with Peter Bell or Israel with Nick Fulweiler. Is that might get yeah. too off, or is that kind of a good way to understand how to read the Bible too? Yeah, it's it's both Israel and the Old Testament. It's it's effectively so what we were taught, and I think it's it's a really succinct way of doing it. Is there's <coughs> two ways of thinking of it. There's um, the fallen condition focus. So it's in the text. What is sinful, what is against God's law, or what is even not of God's law or straying from God's law. So any kind of sinful condition, anything that, is, that strays away from perfection is effectively where we put our feet into. And then there's the Christ-centered, or the Christ-focused connection. And that's how does this fallen condition focus? How does this, how does this fallen nature that is in this text, so in Exodus 17, the people who are striving or striving, conducting, literally conducting a case against Moses and by extension, the Lord, uh, where is the fall in this? And it's, they do not understand that their, their life, their very being comes from the Lord and that they're striving against the one who's taken them out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the Christ-centered the Christ-centered focus, I mean, there's a couple other words for it, but it's where does this text find its fulfillment in? And the fulfillment, we're given it explicitly, like I said, in First Corinthians from Paul, that that rock is Christ. So it can either be Israel, it can be David when he sins with Bathsheba, it could be Abraham when he lies in front of um, either one of the, the old emperors or pharaohs, it can be Adam when he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or Eve. It's anybody who in the text is against God's law or is not fully in line with God's law, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. That's, that's where we put, that's where Peter Bell puts his shoes, that's where Nick Fulweiler puts his shoes, that's where everybody in this, this who is, who's listening to this podcast puts their shoes. You don't put your shoes in the hero's um, feet. Even when David defeats Goliath, so many times you'll have preachers talk about uh, be the David, defeat your Goliath, defeat your big problems. We're not Goliath. We're not David in that situation. Effectively, we're Goliath. Uh, We're the ones who are coming against God's people. We're the ones who are coming against God's anointed. Mm -hmm. And we're defeated, sin defeated, and Christ's anointed comes through. Gotcha. Makes sense. Um, so that's narrative. That's 43% of the Bible. So poetry is the next major category of literary style, which would be categorized as, you know, metaphors, images, explanation. That's too difficult to understand with logic or reason. So we all have an understanding of, you know, Walt Whitman and Robert Frost, you know, when when we're talking about poetry, but poetry in the Bible uh, a lot of times it doesn't mean it's rhyming or anything like that. Yeah. You know, it comes in the yeah, it comes in the forms of either songs, wisdom, yep. or prophets. Yep. So, any any elaboration on that? Is there a, what is the best poetry book that you could re- refer to? Um, I mean, there's a lot of it's going to be um, in the Psalms, and so it's, you have to look. 
when you're looking at the Psalms, when you're looking at any type of Hebrew poetry, um, Hebrew poetry doesn't work like our poetry does, where if, if there's necessarily a rhyme that follows line after line, or a rhyme from um, verse 1 to verse 4, or a rhyme from verse 1 to verse 3, what they'll do most of the time, I don't know the exact percentages, they'll do this fancy term called, um, it's like a kiliastic structure. And so it starts off, you want to think of a pyramid. Think of a pyramid and then kind of lay it on its, on its side, where it's pointing the other direction instead of up. Okay. And so it's, you have, let's say you have 10 verses, and so verse 1 and verse 10 are quote-unquote similar, so they talk about the same thing. 2 and 9 talk about the same thing. 3 and 8, kind of so on, up until we'll say verse 5. And verse 5 doesn't match with any other verses, it's its own kind of concrete statement. Oh. What the Hebrew poet saying is, this is the point of this po- like poetic statement. And these other verses help explain and kind of define our view of what verse 5 says. Does that make sense? That's, that's most of poetry. That doesn't describe all of poetry, but that's a, that's a very idiomatic or very consistent structure to Hebrew poetry. And it's, it's knowing the Bible really well, having somebody else who knows the language, either your pastor or professor or somebody that you, that you know who knows this stuff, or you know, educating on it and seeing the structure of this. And how does this structure affect what this meaning is? Because in Hebrew poetry, structure affects meaning. Right. Yeah. I mean, in poetry, I mean, is such a... Uh, it, it, it could take its own huge conversation because there's so oh, many yeah, ways to go. I, I look at it as like the artistic... Yeah, yeah it's very artistic and, and uh, there's a lot of... We could have a whole giant topic on that. So... Um, I yeah. want people to know that it's a third of the Bible. Uh, like you said, context is everything. So it's a really important for us to you know, mentally know when we're reading, are we reading narrative? Are we reading poetry or, yeah. or are we re- reading prose discourse? So it's good to distinguish which one is which so we can better interpret it. Um, so Psalms is obviously one of the, one, if not the most recognized book in the Bible, it's, uh, the longest, um, and it is just chocked full of poetry. Oh, yeah. And it's recited, and even Jesus, uh, talks about the Psalms quite a bit, right? Yeah, yeah, so Jesus quotes the Psalms, one of the, I think it's, think it's the most quoted psalm in the entire Bible. I think it's the most quoted of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's Psalm 110. Um, yep. Highly messianic. Psalm 2 is quoted sometimes. Psalm 22 is quoted sometimes. There, there are parts of it. Um, Isaiah 53 has is a very poetic form. Um, less so. It's both prophecy and poets kind of at the same time. Um, so, yeah, there's... There's a lot of that. So it's also the same thing as historical narrative stuff. It's how is the New Testament interpreting this poem for you? And 119 is the longest psalm, right? Yeah, yeah that's correct. And then 88, if people want to, uh, after this, you know, whenever you get time, flip to Psalm 88. I personally find that a really great one and interesting because that's really... A, it's kind of crying out to God, right? And yeah, that's that's a lot of the songs is laments, laments, uh, right? Crying out to crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? Which 
Jesus says on the cross. It's right. It's the one where he talks on the cross. Between, yeah, very real conversation between God's people and God. Mm-hmm. And right, like you said, most of Psalms is laments, which is crying out to God, and yeah. the majority of the rest are hymns, which are praising God. Yep, yeah, praising God. It's hymns, as far as we can tell, um, and we can see it throughout the New Testament and through the ancient church. Uh, hymns were used pretty exclusively in at least Israelite worship, um, if not up until probably 800, 900 AD, so it was, it was written for worship. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just here's a cool song that you can read. It's it was this is specifically meant for worshiping God. He, he gave us a song book. He gave us a song book to use um, to help in worshiping Him, understanding His attributes and how He's worked in the past. So when you say so, the subcategories of poetry, which would be songs, wisdom, and prophets. So songs would be psalms, right? Yeah. I mean, there's other parts of Old Testament and Testament that have been part of Psalm or have been part of Psalms, but yeah, Psalms is the, the Big biggest one. category. And then wisdom could be uh, Proverbs, right? Yeah, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon as both poetical forms and some wisdom forms. Okay. Um, but these intermixed, but yeah, mostly Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes. Now what about prophets? Prophets can be like Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, and then the later minor prophets, so uh, Micah, Malachi, Zechariah, all of those guys. I personally love the book of Isaiah. That is such yeah. a cool. We're going back to you know this is what we told people on the podcast. We're going to start like repeating certain uh, things that we say, oh, but yeah. but if we talk about proving the Bible factual and talking about prophecy and proving either resurrection in Jesus too is. Isaiah is in the Old Testament, quote me if I'm wrong, this is 700 years before Jesus, and yeah, he prophesies, about, yeah. yeah, he prophesies like to the T, like, yeah, it's just amazing, so that's a good yeah, one. You'll hear, you'll hear critical scholars, and this is just to have it out there, because I, like, I do know people are going to be thinking this, Yep. <laughs> you'll hear critical scholars talk about... Um, the fact that the only reason why you can have Isaiah predicting is because Christians in 100-200 AD looked back at Isaiah, rewrote some things, they'll call it redacting, they rewrote some things, uh, put some new things in, so the orthodox quote-unquote version of Christianity wins out because, oh, the Old Testament prophesied that, but the critics say it's because Christians changed it, which historically... They have absolutely zero proof. There's nothing that proves that whatsoever. And it's just because they don't want what the Bible says to be true to be true. But right. yeah, like what you're saying, it's yeah, it's it's in, incredibly prophetic. Yep. And it's important for us to point out the the biggest critics uh, objections because we know, you know, some people might uh, be listening to this and aren't, aren't believers and we just want to be honest about addressing yeah. doubts. Um and so we're not Even shying away from it. If we read like a New York Times article or a popular theologian who does not believe in the Bible, we will, we will hear and see the stuff very consistently. Yep. And we have an answer to it all. And the Bible explains itself. And it's time and time again proven to be right and win those arguments. So uh, That's true. we're patient and loving in these conversations. And we just hope that people have an open mind and are willing to... Um, 
learn and listen. So, yeah. I mean, for for me personally, this this episode, I should have said this in the very beginning. I, I this couldn't have come at a more of a perfect coincidental time. I actually, uh, I have maybe a week left, but. I am finishing reading the entire Bible. It was something I always wanted to say I could do, and it took me <laughs> it took me about three and a half years to do, and uh, give or take, like doing it pretty uh, lot at one time, and then maybe like maybe a verse a day at another time or whatnot. But it was a it, it was supposed to be a one year long Bible reading plan, which are most of them. It was called the five five workday or five day a week reading plan and uh took me took me about three and a half years to do so um with that said uh there's those there's a lot of bible plans out there and um what do you have any that you could suggest to the audience or that you've personally done i've been following the same bible plan for probably eight years, nine years. It's called a McShane Bible reading plan um, developed by a Scottish pastor in, I think, the 1800s. Um, but you go through the Old Testament once, the New Testament twice a year. So we're following that um, mostly for the past eight years. So that's been really helpful just for understanding the holistic Bible, not just reading parts of it. Um, so that way when I get to a prophetic text, I get to a historical text, I get to a doctrinal text or um, prose, I know generally, kind of, I can still learn more. Uh, I know effectively what it's pointing to, and it's not just an isolated text. It's it's within the biblical canon. Mm-hmm. Now, are there some books that you would say dig into more and read over and over and over again versus other ones like i know with the book of numbers or something like that where you're literally spending your entire time you know reading just genealogies which are important obviously i'm not downplaying but you know there are other books that can kind of like maybe help your salvation a little bit better or more than certain other books would you say or yes i think it's i think a lot of it comes down to what our diet was growing up so my diet growing up in the church was uh was very influenced by the new testament which is not bad but mostly paul's letters and i think that tends to be the diet most churches and so i think that's what most people turn to and again like we absolutely should turn to it it's 100 percent inspired mm-hmm. um by the spirit used to uh, convict and to justify and to sanctify and to glorify. Um, but I mean, maybe I'm weird, but it's like I really do enjoy like the law text. I really do enjoy um, the Pentateuch. I enjoy Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Like, that's that's been kind of my favorite part of the Bible for the past couple of months. Mm-hmm. More so because I see. Now that like I'm being more immersed to it, I, I understand some of the Hebrew behind it. I see its allusions in the New Testament, and, and it fills out the New Testament to a degree that I never thought possible. That's um, true. Just because I, I hadn't really pushed into it. Uh, I hadn't really been forced to push into it. I didn't really listen to sermons growing up on it. Listen to a bunch of sermons on Colossians and Philippians and all the ones that are more like doctrinal focused and kind of tell us things to do and tell us things to believe versus... Pentateuch, like it's 
way before our time. So it's hard sometimes to understand the context of what in the world does the tabernacle have to do with us or the sacrificial system or even the genealogies. But learning through it and then seeing it reappear or alluded to in the New Testament has been really, really helpful from my understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just... So that's been huge for me. Or maybe I'm weird. Well, we all know that a little bit, but <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> we're all a little weird, but no, I mean, um, no, no, I was just kind of digesting what you're saying because it seems dry at first, especially the first time you crack open your Bible and yeah. you get, you get, you pump into Genesis and you're like, this is really colorful and cool. And then you get yeah. to Exodus and you're like, yeah, okay, this is exciting. And then Numbers or Leviticus or... Like, I'll skip it. Let's go to Judges. Or it just hits you like a stone wall. And that's where a lot yeah. of people's Bible reading plans fall short. They, totally. they they open the Bible like it's a normal book from just starting at page one, going to the end. And they hit uh, Leviticus or something like that. And they it just they lose all their motivation. So... Yeah. People is like your third word of the diet. You're like, eh, I've, been, I've done it. <laughs> yeah. I'm good. Yeah, so the, a lot of these Bible reading plans, they know that. They built them in for that. So what they'll do is they'll they'll give you a little dosage of other books to flip to while you're reading the other ones as well. So And it does. It cross-references it, so it helps explain yeah. it. So the point is there's a lot of smart people out there that have done the hard, hard work for you. Yeah. Um, so... Just ask for help. Look on online. Um, yeah, and even if I can give kind of a small plug, and this this can be there's been some contention around it for non-reformed versus reformed circles, but it's the it's the contrast between the law and the gospel, and it's understanding the function of the law and understanding the function of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I think all too often we hear, and we've alluded to in the, the past two episodes, but that. Um, that the law ended at Christ, and with Christ, the gospel started. Right. And I think that's why people have such a hard time reading the Old Testament. It's like, well, this doesn't apply to me anymore. Why do I have to read about the Ten Commandments, about the priests, about all the sacrifices, and all the laws that Israel had to follow? And that's where I think understanding what the law is and what the gospel is. It's The law is the sacrificial system, the, the all the mandates against killing, against cotton fiber in your shirts against um the weird like the weird ones like boiling i think it's boiling a baby goat and cow milk or something something like that i forget what it is i I just read it in numbers Mm -hmm. it's Um, hard to follow right yeah it's it's hard to follow you have to realize it's these were given because yahweh god was telling them i'm giving you this system to point to the one who's going to tell the system for you right and to point to New Testament letters, to point to the Gospels and say, this sacrificial system, this is how ridiculously holy I am. This is how many steps you have to take in a human sense to get to my holiness. And that's, that's where we feel that separation. It's like, this is kind of ridiculous. And it's because it's intentionally so. Mm-hmm. It's intentionally ridiculous. So I, can't, I can't do this stuff. I can't. I can't be part of that purity system where women, after menstruating, after having their period, have to be away from the temple for seven days. If you had your period, like, three minutes before the service started in the temple, you had to leave. Right. There is there nothing you can do about it. It's because of the purity laws. It's because 
of the holiness of God because we cannot be in the presence of holiness. Not because he doesn't want us to be, it's because we can't. Like we, we can't live as sin in front of holiness. So it's, it's understanding like the, the law is there to point us to the gospel, to, to break us down, to tell us you can't do this, but there's somebody who can do this. There's somebody who did do this. And you believe in him, he did this on your behalf. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really understanding kind of that foundational stuff where it's, I think it's why people have such a hard time reading it. It's, what do I do with this law? It seems disassociated. It seems like something I don't have to follow anymore. Or outside of, outside of a mediator, you do have to follow this. Right, but true. But within the mediator, Hebrews, that's what the book of Hebrews is. It's the mediator has done this. The mediator sat down in the tabernacle next to the ark versus the priest the word the verb sitting down which there is one in Hebrews is yeshav and shakan are kind of the two words that are used verbs that are used for sitting or dwelling that's not used of the priests in the temple they didn't sit because their work was never done their work of sacrificing their work of giving alms of giving thanksgiving of all that stuff was never done and Hebrews talks about Christ sitting down at the right hand of the Father. And it's supposed to allude you to the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies, in that crazy holy place that the priests only go once a year and to atone for the sins of his people. And Christ sat. Mm-hmm. He finished. And it's, like, I have a passion for teaching people the law, and it's not to burden them, it's to free them. We, we, I think we all know that your passion is so great that we started off talking about poetry and then you went into the law. <laughs> so, it's just so, so, yeah, yeah. If you want to read your Bible right, it's, you got to right, know the right. contrast. you got to totally. see what is law, what is gospel. So with that said, uh, that's the second of the third major literary styles. Um, yeah. The third would be prose discourse. So poetry is 33%, narrative 43%. Um, prose discourse is about 24%. Yeah. So that would be, like you said, speeches, letters, essays. Yep. Yep. It requires a logical response to yeah. from the reader to a linear thought, a persuasion by reason. It usually has a call to action as well. Yeah. Um, so you want to think Paul's letters, mm-hmm. Nehemiah, or uh, I mean, yeah, Nehemiah uh, and Ezra with the resurrection of the second temple, or, yeah, with the second temple, um, building up the, the temple and the, the law being proclaimed, or uh, Moses will take, maybe, yeah, it's, it's anything that we're directly being told to do something. Now, would that be a good example, would be the B attitudes from Jesus? Yeah, I think that would be a pretty strong example. I think... That kind of borders on some other things, but and not necessarily within these three categories. But that's I think that's pretty strictly prose. Because mm-hmm. I was thinking just the linear format of he's telling you to do this to understand it this way in order to apply it this way to you know it kind of persuades you into reason, and then it yeah, calls yeah. you to act in a certain way or you know. Um, yeah, and even with the. Uh, Sermon on the Mount with Matthew 5 to 7, um, blessed are whatever for whatever. That's kind of the formula. Blessed are is this person for this reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, blessed are poor for they, or blessed, blessed are poor for 
they shall inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall be happy and glorified. Um, it's that has direct parallels to uh, Exodus 20 with the giving of the Ten Commandments, and it's you see Jesus walks up to the top of the hill as Moses walked up to the top of the hill. He gives them ten blessedness, ten beatitudes. Moses gives the Israelites ten commandments. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. Jesus Jesus intensifies the Ten Commandments, basically saying these Ten Commandments are a little bit more outward. And I'm telling you, it's not just the outward, it's the thoughts. And so he takes the law and he says, you thought the law was doable. I'm going to tell you, the law is not doable. Right. Yeah, because like to the example, someone could read the Ten Commandments and be like, thou shall not murder. Oh, I've never murdered anybody. Mm-hmm. I could check I'm that off the list. That. But he's yeah, like, no. The rich young ruler in Jesus, rich young ruler, literally says, I have done all these things. He hasn't murdered. He hasn't committed adultery on the physical kind of external side. Right. We know he has on the inside. Yep, with the intent and how you're – Jesus is after your heart. He cares about your heart. Yeah. Um, so we did the three major categories. We're 45 minutes in, so I wanted to skim through a couple things. Um and tie this all up and do a nice bow, hopefully. Yeah. We'll see. This is all uncut, everybody. So that's why you hear doorbells ring and yeah. my dogs bark. And uh, that we're in uh, COVID-19 times where, you know, everything is uh, at play. Totally. <laughs> at <Yeah>. home. <laughs> so um, other biblical features, uh, ancient Jewish literature. So this lacks – this is where a lot of people are like, huh, when they read the Bible? Because we're reading yeah. it with modern lenses and yeah, it's it, not wrong. It's just not full. Right, and we're not just properly educated on it. So in, in, in ancient Jewish literature, it lacks a lot of details. Their, their way of writing was very ambiguous, which was intentional. Yeah, um, yeah there's – I mean to give a kind of a, a verbal picture, it's imagine a circle – and there's a dot in the middle, and that dot in the middle is the truth. And the circle around it is what the Hebrew author or the Jewish author actually says. And he kind of right. goes around the topic, and you have to figure out what is he saying. Because he's saying all these things, but all these things are pointing to a truth. Right. Yeah, and I, you know, would this be a good example when in Genesis they're talking about the, women, the woman's offspring crushing the serpent's head while being bitten? And so that that's a way, it's a clue. It's a clue to pay attention to genealogy throughout the Bible, which points to Jesus. Yeah, it's, it is, they're telling us there's two distinct lines. There's a line of, a line of man and a line of God. Right. Um, the line of the serpent, the line of the created, and the line of the creator. The line of the ground, the line of heaven. So there's different ways of saying it, which, again, looking at genealogies, they will show you. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. So it's meant to be, this ancient Jewish literature is meant to be dense. So it's forcing you to really slow down and, and actually do, this is a term, meditation literature. Mm-hmm. Slow down, be thoughtful about it, uh, go back to other parts of the Bible, hermeneutics, right? Like going back and cross-referencing, mm-hmm. um, studying it. Um yeah, and see, you can tell, not that they're dancing around the topic, but they're describing a diamond, and they're looking at all its various 
pieces and cuts and refractions and how the light is glancing off of it. And a Jewish author will look at that and describe all those things without describing this is a diamond. It'll describe all the things that it is. Mm-hmm. And so it takes concentration to say, what, like, what's, what, what is the, the central truth? What is the application? What is the doctrine that they're describing? Because they are describing it. They just don't work like Paul works, where Paul is saying, this is the doctrine. This is what I want you to believe. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. Um, next question. Uh, when we're looking at the Bible... It's obviously, if most people know this, you can break it down to Old Testament and then New Testament. Yeah. Um, Old Testament before the Gospels, before Christ comes on the scene in the first yeah. coming. And then the New Testament uh, is just during Christ and, you know, today, really. Yeah, the church and then us. Church age, which we'll go into different, uh, fan, you know, really interesting topics on how to explain that in later podcasts. But... Yeah. So, I was doing some research, and the Aramaic Hebrew section of the Bible, which is the Tanakh, that's another way of saying the Pentateuch, right? Tanakh is the way of describing the whole Old Testament. It's the whole the, entire Old Testament, yeah, not just the first Torah, five. No, yep. Yeah, it's the, they break it up in the three. It's the Torah, which is the law, so the Pentateuch. Then you have the Navim, which is the prophets. The right. Hebrew for Navi is prophet. And then Tanakh, and then the later pro- or the later writings, the Ketuvim. Right. So the T and is, is writing. So it's, that's, that describes the whole Bible. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Testament. It's just the T in Tanakh, which is the Torah, which is the Pentateuch, yep. and then yeah. So that makes sense. That's the Old Testament. We talked a lot about that. Then we got obviously the apostles' writings, which um, were originally in Greek. Um, that's the New yep. Testament. Now, yep. I've heard this term, other Second Temple writings, which yes. were original writings in Greek Hebrew. Yeah, they were written in Greek for the most part, but they were Hebrew texts. So, I see that this was something the Catholics and the Orthodox Christians had adopted into their scriptures. Yeah. Yes, you'll see, they'll call it either Second Temple Judaism, Intertestamental, they'll call it like Apocrypha, um, sometimes incorrectly they'll call it the Pseudopagrapha, how do you say that word? Pseudopagrapha. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a couple different terms, I think what we know today is the Apocrypha, and I think scholarly people will, talk, will say it's Intertestamental or Second Temple Judaism, but yeah. So this is not part of the 66 books that we read. No, and that's the reason why we know this. I mean, A, it's manuscript evidence. We can tell by the dating. We can tell by what's actually talked about, who's referred to, um, and also the language that it's written in. So it's between like 350 B.C. and maybe 150 B.C., maybe a little bit after that. But it's written in Greek, and we know it can't be part of the Old Testament because it was written, I think, 95% in Hebrew, 5% in Aramaic. Um, and then New Testament's written exclusively in Koine Greek, so just kind of commoner Greek. Um, and, yeah, intertestamental is Greek as well, but not part of the Old Testament or part of the New Testament, even though the Catholic Church and a couple other sects use it. So uh, some listeners are either like, what did I just hear the last few minutes and get lost? Yeah. And the other ones are like, I can just feel they're like, why... Is that not in our Bibles right yeah, now? Yeah. Yeah, it's 
So I mean, it's it's confusing, and a lot of it is. So we get intertestamental. You get a lot of good historical background in okay. the New Testament. Um, it's not inspired in the sense that it is salvific or that it imparts through the preaching of the word, mm. um, conviction or, or all that stuff. It's is used for, and you can tell the writers they're like they're not to make scripture. They're telling you history just for history's sake. Uh, and that's the big difference between gotcha. history as kind of inspired. It is history, but it is moving towards a point of redemption as a redemptive story mm. versus history just for history's sake, which tends to be intertestamental. Um, but then it's got some theological background to it, but a lot of it disagrees with what we have in the Old Testament, New Testament, okay. where the reason why Catholics tend to use the Apocrypha is it talks about purgatory. It talks about a couple of things. Um, related to Catholic doctrine, and they have a different understanding of justification, different understanding of sanctification, and so those books uh, will kind of glorify that understanding versus what we see in the in, in the Old Testament New Testament that we have. Okay, cool. Um, one more little nugget, and then we'll wrap mm-hmm. up. Um, apocalyptic literature, which is. Very interesting, and people hear that and they think of destruction and, you know, the end of the world. But really, what it really means is um, actually seeing the true nature of something. Yeah. So it's revealing. Yeah, and that's Revelation. So the book of Revelation, and and it's just revealing (laughs) to you. So Isaiah had an apocalyptic experience when he saw. the, the past and future, what God was showing him. And, and even when a, uh, Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he ran into Jesus on the road of Damascus, that was an apocalyptic experience. Yep, he was revealed to him. Daniel 9 to 12, we have it in uh, a lot of revelation. Um, it's, I mean, it's simply like it is another genre of text that was pretty well attested for during that time period so with that said uh knowing apocalyptic literature is a lot of dreams and visions and symbolism uh revelation would that go under one of the categories uh poetry prose discourse or narrative yeah so it would kind of have elements of everything it have some historical stuff in it, like you see in Revelation 1 to 3. It's kind of what you can call the prologue. It's introducing us to what's going to be said and who it's being said to. Mm-hmm. And so Revelation 2 and 3, it talks about seven churches. And as far as we can tell, there's seven real literal churches um, in Asia Minor, Turkey, that area where Paul's ministering, or not Paul, where John's ministering to. And so he's writing Revelation to churches. He's writing it to seven physical churches. He's not writing it as a, I have this dream far off in the future. He's saying, you are going through these things right now. Let me give you some hope. Let me give you uh, different mental pictures, different different allegories for Christ's ultimate victory. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I think maybe the closest thing, even though it has all three, is probably has the most poetry of everything. I'm, I'm going to kind of ballpark that. Yeah. Um, even though it's kind of hard sometimes to tell the difference, and especially in Revelation, because there's not much like Revelation. There's a, there's a category of apocalyptic writing during that time period, but 
Um, it's very poetic in how it moves in Greek. Right. And I th- I'm looking forward to our future conversation about eschatology and, yep. and talking about this stuff because it's fascinating to me. Um, and you yeah. know, with the, how the world is right now, I feel like a lot of people are like, I want to learn about that. So yeah, no, we I've will. Seen all church trends, there's been more churches kind of starting a, a sermon series on revelation and how COVID is a sign of the times. And we're going to surprise you in our podcast. You're going to have to see what we're going to say, but yeah, it may or may not be that. Right. Right. Um, okay, well, I think we took up the, the majority of an hour uh, with you guys, and I mean, that the main title was How to Read the Bible, and yeah. I know we kind of jumped all over the place, and we didn't really maybe, at this point, and uh, we apologize if we haven't given you a really clear, <laughs> concise sentence of like, what's the steps of reading the Bible, so maybe yeah. in a nutshell, could, could you yeah. maybe sum it up in a nice way of like, if you just ran into somebody and they said, okay, I'm interested. Um, and, and they get this huge gigantic Bible that's confusing and then you're, yeah. and they want to read it. They're, they're motivated yeah. to read it. What would you tell them? Um, I'd say first of all, and I alluded it towards the end of, of talking about it, but I really do think foundational to how to read the Bible is you have to understand law and gospel. You have to understand what does this tell me about the law? What does it tell me that I can't do? And what is the gospel? What is the gospel portion of this? How is the gospel applied to this? And what has been done for me? So I think that's big. And that's that's just not to not moralize mm-hmm. the entirety of the scripture. It's not to say, be a better David, be a, a stronger Saul or Solomon or, or Samuel or, or whatever it may be, or be a more faithful Abraham, um, be a smarter, less dumb Adam, not <laughs> eating the tree. It's... So it's it's a not moral license. I bet I think that's foundational. So law and gospel. Okay. And we'll, we'll flesh this out later on um, in other podcasts. But then history is I mean really like look at Pixar. Look at how Pixar moves throughout a, an hour and a half long movie. That's that's history. That's they are taking characters. You want to figure out what the characters are in the text. You want to figure out what their road is, what their journey is. You want to figure out what the conflict is. Uh, and then who comes in to save that conflict? Uh, and then what's the resolution based off of that conflict? Mm. So that's kind of how history moves. Poetry, uh, there's a bunch of different ways. I mean, most usually there's some parallelism. Uh, and so you want to see, so two lines may have the same thought, the next two lines may have the same thought. And so following that structure, chiliad or chiliastic structure is... Um, one in ten agree, two in nine agree, three in ten, or three in eight degrees. So you want to see what's what is the middle thoughts. So Kiliastic poetry, what's the middle thoughts, and how does that explain the rest of that psalm or proverb, whatever it may be? Um, wisdom literature, as most of people want to think, it's like, oh, this is if you follow this, this is true. Wisdom literature tends to be, and again, we can go on it later. It tends to be like, this is how the kingdom works. Not necessarily this is how earth works. This is how the kingdom works. Okay. Uh, then the glorified kingdom. And it's, we'll see pieces of it on earth. This temporary kind of heaven, or this temporary um, home for us. That it truly is how the kingdom works. Um, prose discourse is either, yeah, sort of the mounts. It's doctrinal stuff. Paul. Uh, <coughs> it's... 
he's telling you something very specifically, do this, do this. But again, they're also relying on, uh, part of it is you have to understand there's an indicative, which is these are the things that have been done for you, and there's the imperative, these are the things you can now do. So like Ephesians, for example, the first four books of Ephesians, or three, chapters, three or four chapters of Ephesians are indicative. So these are the things that are already done for you. So Ephesians 1 is like that big election text where you've been elected, you've been loved, you've been glorified and sanctified and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Ephesians 5 and 6 is like the marriage. Therefore, now husbands and wives, this is how you shall live. Um, spiritual armor coming out of that as well. And so it's understanding what has come before. And then the prose discourse is now that you've seen what comes before this, here is now what you shall do. Mm, okay. Uh, the same thing with Sermon on the Mount. And so hopefully that gives some categories to it where we can't read the Bible as one text um, or divorce it from its context. Divorce the Old Testament from the way the New Testament explains it. Or divorce the New Testament from the background of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So that's hopefully that kind of three or four minute description helps yeah. set the path. And my own personal experience that you know if I could give a tiny bit of advice or on my small experience would be um, the more you read the Bible you'll start to find that it's starting to actually kind of read to you yep. and it's like you can feel really it's a living word um, it is not just a bunch of pages with letters on it um, it is literally God's word so it'll start to come alive to you um, yeah. That's the good stuff. I mean, it is. It take. It's meant to not ju- just be a book you read once and you put it on your shelf and never talk, look at it again. It's actually an ongoing thing. Many people read the Bible over and over again through a lifetime or keep coming back to it. Um, it's it's meant to digest and talk about with other people. You can go online and use ref, uh, resources like the Bible Project and even watch videos that are short and easy to digest that are go to scripture. Um, to explain things, um, if and I know that some people might have a book on their sh- in their house, but uh, whether they do or don't, how do they know? Because there's different versions of our Holy Bible. Yeah. Um, King James version, you know, go on and on. What, in your opinion, um, would you say would be the best one to to purchase or try to pick up? I mean. If- if I, if I had my uh, um, my wish, everybody would know Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Just, <laughs> That's a big wish. That's ambitious. <laughs> uh, or have a passage who knows. But I mean, outside of that, that's not. I can't say that it's purest in the sense that it's closest to its original manuscripts, uh, which is the best way to read anything. Mm. Um, but in terms of version, it's, I, I really do think, and I used to be pretty pretty dogmatic about just one version. Okay. Um, get as many versions as you can. Um, as faithful descriptions, they call it either dynamic equivalent um, or like literal, so word for word equivalent. So there's either like phrase by phrase or word for word. And most people tend to think that word for word is more faithful to the text, which is not true. Um, and dynamic or like phrase for phrase is less faithful, which is, again, not true. Um, you want both, because you want to know, because 
there's idioms in Hebrew and Greek. There's there's ways of phrasing things. If you just do word for word translation, which is the NASB tends to be this. Tends to be they've literally translated each and every word within its own very simple context without taking into picture what does this whole paragraph or sentence say. Hmm. Um, and so you want a combination of both. So get the ESV, NIV, NASB, KJV, RSV, all the V's you can find. Yeah. All the versions you can find. Um, and as you read, if you have a question, either reference other versions that have different words or different ways of phrasing it, um, or reach out to your pastor or find somebody who knows the languages and have them help you. Yeah, the ESV is the one I've read read and currently reading yeah. and have is my it's primary Bible. the best combination of both. I know there's a new one called the NET, the New English Translation. Uh-huh. Um, and that one tends to be closer to the ESV in terms of conservative faithfulness um, with also taking into consideration how Greek and Hebrew is phrased. So it does a really good job of that. But yeah, it's I think ESV is probably the best combination. Yeah. But I don't think it should be the only combination. And study uh, study Bibles. I, I just... I find them to be helpful um, because you could be reading a verse and don't get down on yourself if you're reading and you're like, what did I just read? That was like what? And it just helps to glance down and see the notes on it. It's like a built-in buddy to explain to you, like, what did you just read? And uh, there's a lot of really smart people, obviously, that are well credited to make those uh, notes. But don't just uh, read that and say, cool, and never talk – like. Uh, ask yeah. your pastor because maybe they can elaborate more. Um, so, with yeah, that's I mean, being part of a faithful church where the word is given to you faithfully every week, and we have Bible studies in the week, and balancing off your pastor. If you're not part of a, a church that's faithful to the word, or if you're not part of a church and you're a Christian, reach out to us, email us, and we can help you get connected to a church. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, I mean, that's the biggest thing is being part of a church that faithfully preaches because you'll learn under it and you'll be mentored under it as well. And you're constantly reminded of the gospel. Yeah. Whether yeah. you go into church in a sermon or every time you're reading uh, something in the Bible, it has to, like, remind you of the gospel. Yep, totally. So, um, okay, let's wrap it up there. Uh, I think we're 0 for 3 on promising people that we're going to be under a half hour. So... Yep. Uh, people are calling our bluff now, and uh, uh, yeah. So um, we're gonna never run out of stuff to talk about with God yeah, and the Bible. So, <laughs> yeah, so promise, but under Yeah. Um, so we'll wrap it up there, everyone. Uh, hopefully that inspired you to read your Bible, and we'll uh, talk to you next time. Yep. We will see you soon. Yep. Thank you.